Turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We continue this morning our journey through this psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, and this chapter is entirely about God's law. The psalmist is praising God's law. He's telling us why it's valuable to him, that he loves it, that he delights in it, that it's his guide, it's his refuge. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 113 to 116. Verses 113 to 116. There's some really important principles here for us about how we are called to live in this world. Now, in a typical sermon, you might expect to have an explanation of the text and then some points of application kind of toward the end, ways that you can put this into practice in your life. These messages from Psalm 119 are different. Uh, The application is kind of spread throughout the message. So, Pay attention in each verse of the psalm and listen for what that is. Throughout the the principles of God's law that we talk about afterwards as well. There's plenty this morning that should be of practical help to us, but it just won't be in three nice bullet points at the end of the message. It'll be kind of woven throughout the whole message this morning. All right, if you're there, Psalm 119, verse 113, follow along as I read. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. All right, let's jump in there. Verse 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. What does it mean to be double-minded? Calvin explains that it has to do with being high, like the highest part of a house or the highest part of a hill. So he's saying it's our high and lofty thoughts that we come up with on our own, that we think are so impressive. Paul, as he describes why it is that we think this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the reason that we have double-minded or high and lofty thoughts is because we don't submit to God's law. Satan's original sin was a thought sin. He said to himself, I will be like the most high. I like the way Spurgeon expresses this. He says, the opposite of the fixed and infallible testimony of God, what we're talking about in Psalm 119, is the wavering, changing thought of men. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Manton, he, he comments, you, you, you know what an anagram is. So you have the letters of a word and they're all mixed up, but they become a different word. So it, it kind of looks like it makes sense. He says, that's us. He, he says, man fallen, okay, fallen in sin, is but the anagram of man in innocency. We have the same affections, but they're misplaced. We love where we should hate and we hate where we should love. Our affections are like a member or a body part out of joint, out of its proper place, as if the arms should hang backward. So what should we be? What should our thinking be like? Why did God give us the capacity for love? Why did God give us the capacity for hate? Well, love is made for God and for God's things, like God's law. Hate is made for sin and all that is opposed to God. So that's what we should be loving and hating. 
So when we're not there, what do we do about it? Isaiah 55, verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. So forsake or turn away from unrighteous thoughts. And then it goes on to say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. So we're to forsake the unrighteous thoughts and we are to adopt God's thoughts. If you were... um, Working in a garden, you know, let's say it's one of those English gardens that has walls and, you know, you're being very careful and you're doing all of the weeding and then somebody throws weeds over into your garden. Would you say, well, I didn't put them there. I'm not going to do anything about it. No, you'd want to deal with it. You would want to get them out so they don't take root. In the same way, it may be that Satan plants thoughts in your mind and you say, well, I wasn't looking for that thought. Still got to root it out. We still have to root out the thoughts that are not aligned with God's thoughts. We had um, out at our house as we're working on things, they were doing some work out working on driveways and ditches and discovered that we have poison hemlock growing out there, which apparently is very toxic. So the guys that were working on it, the one guy was, you know, grabbing it and ready to pull it out and found out, you know, as they called and asked about it, the, the person said, drop what you're doing, go home and shower because it can be fatal. So uh, the next day I went out and had to make sure that it got all dug up by the roots because we don't want it to grow back, right? You can't just cut it off. You have to dig it out by the roots. Well, in the same way, Thomas Manton comments about our sinful thoughts. He says, in vain do we lop off the branches and let the root live. We need to root out all of our unrighteous thoughts. And instead, what we need to do is build up a storehouse of truth. If I had, uh, if I had a bag this morning that had, let's say, you know, like a hundred white marbles in it and three or four black ones in there, and I asked you to put your hand in there and pick out a marble, but you couldn't see what, was, what you were picking, you'd have a pretty good chance of picking a white one, Right? You might not, you might get a black one, but you'd have a pretty good chance of getting a white one. In the same way, if we fill our minds with good thoughts, if we fill our minds with God's thoughts, then when our mind is going to look for a solution, going to look for a thought, chances are we're going to find something that honors God. But the more that we fill our minds with the wrong thoughts, then the greater the chance is that when we're looking for something, some solution, or when our mind is wandering, that we're going to land on ungodly thoughts. So it matters what we put into the bag, what we put into our head. We have to put in God's thoughts, build up a storehouse. That's why early in the psalm, verse 11, we saw that the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? that I might not sin against you. That storehouse of truth will help us to think God's way. The next verse, verse 114 says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Why do we need a hiding place? Well, when we get to the New Testament and Paul's describing how we live as Christians, one of the things that he says is, in Ephesians 6, verse 12, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. So we're actually in a battle 
a spiritual battle against Satan and his forces. And so that's why we need a hiding place to run to or a shield to protect us. So God is going to be our hiding place. He's going to be our shield. Psalm 51, or excuse me, 57 verse 1 says, In you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. What's that picture saying? In the shadow of your wings. That's like a hen protecting its chicks. It kind of gathers the chicks in under its wings so that whatever the threat is, whether it's a, a hawk or it's fire or something, those chicks are protected. Jesus took that idea when he was talking to the people of Jerusalem and he said this, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Spurgeon points out, as much as we often want to just retreat and go to the hiding place, the fortress, and, and, and God is that hiding place for us, there are times where we also need to be out in the world. And so God is not just a hiding place, but he's also a shield. So when you're out in the middle of the battle, God is our shield too. Now, the question that comes to mind is, who does God shield? Who does he protect? Let me just read for you. I'm going to read five verses, just kind of rapid fire. And listen in these verses. First of all, in several of them, there's a connection with God's word. But also listen for who it is that is shielded by God. Psalm 5, verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So the righteous. Psalm 18, verse 30. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him people of Jerusalem were not willing. Are we willing? Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Psalm 84 11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Proverbs 2 verse 7, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. So it's the righteous. It's those who are willing to take refuge in him. It's those who walk uprightly. Those who walk in integrity. In that passage about the armor of God, we are told to take up the shield of faith. So do you trust God's word? Do you believe what God has said? That's when God is a shield to you, when you believe what he has said. And if you believe what he has said, it'll show in your life. And you'll be one who walks righteously, walks uprightly. There's a, there's a consistency here with understanding the word of God and our response to it and being one who is shielded by God. That's how the word of God, through the shield of faith, functions to protect us. So those who take refuge in him are those who put his word into practice. Faith in action. Verse 115 of Psalm uh, 119 is one that I want to camp on for a few minutes this morning. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Here the psalmist says that he wants the evildoers to depart from him. He wants a separation from them. It raises the question, what is the proper relationship of a believer to the world. How should we think about that? 
Well, we need to start by recognizing that the world, in terms of its opposition to God, can be a snare and a hindrance to us. So, for example, Proverbs 13, verse 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. St. Augustine, in his Confessions, um, tells a story of stealing some pears when he was like a, a young man, a teenager. And he says he stole the pears and he, he, he knew it was wrong and later came to repent of it, but he, he did it knowing that it was wrong and he didn't even want the pears. So why did he do it? Why did he steal the pears? Here's what he said. He said, For had I then loved the pears I stole and wished to enjoy them, I might have done it alone, like had I been all by myself. He says, if, if it was just the pears, I could have done it when I was all by myself. But he says, had the, bare, had the bare commission of the theft sufficed to attain my pleasure. He said, if it was just that, that stealing it was what I wanted. Nor needed I have inflamed the itching of my desires by the excitement of accomplices. So he's bringing into the picture the people that he was with. And he says, but since my pleasure was not in those pairs, it was in the offense itself which the company of fellow sinners occasioned. He was being the companion of fools. On his own, he wouldn't have even done it. It was just because he was with these people that he chose to steal the pairs. And honestly, being in the companionship of fools can be a problem even if you're not the one committing the sin or doing the, the, the thing that's a problem. I can remember when I was in high school spending the night with a couple of friends, and these were guys that I didn't usually like hang out with. It was the only time I ever you know, spent the night with these guys. And at one point we were out in a car, and I'm in the back seat, the two of them are in the front, and they start pulling out bottle rockets and shooting them off at sheriff's cars. What am I going to do? I'm in the back seat of the car. I can tell them to stop, but I can't make them stop. I didn't do anything as far as the bottle rockets is concerned, but I'm stuck. Why? Because I chose to be the companion of fools. So who you choose to hang out with is important. So the psalmist is saying, depart from me, you evildoers. He's wanting a separation from those who are doing evil. Now, Israel, as a nation, had this problem. Psalm 106 details how Israel fell into sin, horrible sins. And here's what it says. This is verses 34 and 35. They did not destroy the peoples when they went into the promised land, like they were supposed to, as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They were influenced by the world. Now, at the same time, we know that we're supposed to be in the world, but not of it. We look at the example of Jesus, and Jesus sat down and ate with sinners, and it wasn't a problem. He never joined in their sin. So whatever this does mean, it doesn't mean living as a monk, right? It doesn't mean completely separate from the world, but it does mean intentionally limiting your voluntary time spent under their influence. And it means choosing how you will live when you are with them. Will you be the influencer or will you be influenced? Do you know yourself well enough to know how much time you should spend there? Nehemiah was able to serve faithfully in the court of Ahasuerus in Babylon. It can be done. But the point is, we can't be, as Calvin says, harnessed in the same yoke. We can't be 
partnering together in the same projects, so to speak. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, we usually think of that, and the first thing our mind goes to is the marriage context. And that's right. Think of Solomon and all of his wives, and what does the text say? His wives drew his heart away from the Lord. And so that's certainly valid to think that way. But it's more than that. It's also these other kinds of partnerships. Why? Because we don't have the same goals. We don't have the same ethics. We don't have the same strategies. So don't be yoked in the same harness serving another master when you can do something else. We need to live in the world. It's not saying don't live in the world and don't come into contact people, with people and don't reach out to people. It's not saying that at all. But we want to be careful about the influence of the world in our lives. We want to be loyal to God above all else. Now, we just sang this before the message. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, He's not going to go hang out in those places, but what's he going to do instead? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. James tells us, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and, catch this, to keep oneself unstained from the world. We had one son who did some work on a vehicle this week, and we ended up with automotive fluid stains on the driveway. And so Janine spent hours and hours working to get those stains out, through, you know, putting this kind of stuff that's supposed to soak up the stains. And we used Dawn dish soap, and we used gasoline, and we used a power washer and all kinds of stuff. It's hard to get stains out. And James is saying, keep yourself unstained by the world. It's important that we are not being influenced in that way by the world. Instead, we should have a proper resolve to obey God. Right? What does the psalmist say? That I may keep the commandments of my God. That's what he wants to do. To have God's blessing, we have to submit to his dominion, keep his commandments. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I'm telling you to do? He says, the one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So calling Jesus Lord, but not actually obeying him, is putting yourself in the same category as the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus. Calling him the king, but not actually living that way, not obeying it. We don't want to be making a mockery of calling Jesus Lord. Instead, we want to have a proper delight in God's law. It's interesting, Spurgeon comments that this, this word God in this verse is um, the only place in this psalm that this word is used. And here, it also has the word my attached to it. My God. And so Spurgeon says, we obey him because he is our God. He says, God's law is our delight when the God of the law is our God. Let me say that again. 
God's law is our delight when the God of the law is our God. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. And the last verse that we'll look at here in Psalm 119 this morning, verse 116 says, Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let me not be put to shame in my hope. This is just expressing our need for God's grace. Human resolve is not enough. It won't result in holiness. 1 Peter 5.10, After you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 2 Thessalonians 2, May God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Uphold me. Establish me, the psalmist is saying. Now, just like a soldier would not go out to battle in civilian clothes with no weapons and no protection or anything like that, we should care for our souls as we would for our bodies. Just like you wouldn't go into battle that way, unprotected and unarmed, we should care for our souls the same way. And so that means we want to not be put to shame We want to live the way that God has called us to. And so we're asking for him to be our strength, to uphold us, to establish us. That's that armor of God that we can be equipped with. Well, that's our verses from Psalm 119 this morning. Now, the principle that we've been looking at for a couple of weeks and we're going to continue with today is simply this. In Christ, the ceremonial law is still valid today. Now, we recognize there is a sense in which we can say that the ceremonial law has been done away with, right? And what that means is that all the rituals are gone. You didn't bring a sheep this morning to offer. We're not worried about the kinds of, you know, fibers in the clothing that we have. And we're not worried about our diet when we go home and have lunch because all those rituals are gone. We don't practice them anymore. But the reason that the rituals are gone is that Jesus has fulfilled those laws and he is still fulfilling them today. Why don't we have a high priest anymore? Well, we do. Jesus is still today serving as our great high priest. It's not that we no longer need a high priest. It's that we have the ultimate one. One aspect of the ministry of that high priest has to do with atonement. And that's what I want to talk about in the remainder of our time this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16. And while you're turning there, Let me start with a definition of atonement. What does that word mean? This is Joel Beakey that gives this definition. He says, atonement is to appease the wrath of an offended party by a gift that rectifies an injustice done in order to restore a broken relationship. So there's a relationship that's been broken and in order to fix that relationship, the person who committed the offense, generally, is bringing a gift to the offended person in order to rectify the situation. That's what atonement is talking about, okay? Now, how does that connect to where we are in Psalm 119? Well, just think through the verses we've looked at this morning. I hate the double-minded. You're gonna see, we'll just talk about it briefly this morning. We, We talked about our vain thoughts, our high thoughts. We, apart from God, know that we need atonement and we come up with all kinds of wrong ideas of how to do it. We'll touch on that a little bit later. Verse 114, the psalmist had said, my hope is in your word. 
Well, only in God's word is where we're going to find the truth about actual atonement that is our ultimate hope. Verse 115, he had said that I may keep the commandments of my God. How does God become my God? I, I, in creation, we had a relationship with him, but that relationship is broken because of sin. How does that relationship get fixed so that he is my God? Verse 116, uphold me according to your promise. God's promise is that he will accept us in Christ because of Christ's atonement. That I may live, well, death is the penalty for sin. How do we gain spiritual life? By means of Christ's atonement. Let me not be put to shame in my hope. Not only am I going to have hope in this life, but I have a certain hope for the future because of Jesus' atonement. It's not on the surface, but the verses that we read this morning, when you go down, they're founded on the truth of the atonement. It's integral to what's being said there. All right, Leviticus 16. You're there in Leviticus 16. Let me give you the context, okay? Just before we jump into this. So this takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. Israel's been brought out of Egypt, okay? The book of Genesis, we, we have creation and then we have right away the fall into sin. And everything in the rest of Genesis is a move away from God, right? They move out of the Garden of Eden. They move out of the land. They, by the time you get to the end of the book, they're in Egypt in slavery, then the book of Exodus is back the other direction. They're brought out of slavery. They're brought out to Mount Sinai where they meet with God. They're brought back to God. But the question then is, if they're sinful, how can sinful people come into God's presence? And Leviticus is answering that question. How can sinful people come into God's presence? Now, the context inside the book of Leviticus is this. The first five chapters have to do with instructions about sacrifices. The next three chapters have to do with instructions about priests. And now we've got instructions about sacrifices and priests and we're ready to go. And so tabernacle worship begins in chapter 9 and everything is the way it's supposed to be until you get to chapter 10. And then you have the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who bring strange fire. We don't know exactly what that means. What we do know is they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. They weren't doing it the way that God had told them to do it. So they were disregarding God's laws and they were coming up with their own ideas instead. God strikes them dead. Now we have a problem. Because we have the representatives of God's people who have sinned and in a very practical level, we have a dead body in the tabernacle. Two of them. So what do we do about this? Because now the tabernacle's been polluted by these dead bodies. So... The next five chapters, 11 through 15, are instructions about clean and unclean. How do you maintain cleanness? And when you're unclean, how do you restore cleanness? By the time we get to the end of all of that, now we come to chapter 16, and it's the center of the book. It's the center of the entire first five books of the Bible, and it's the story of the Day of Atonement. So that's the setting. Now, uh, if you're there, I need to get there myself. I'm not going to read every verse. I'm just going to kind of skip through a little bit and summarize as we go. But Leviticus 16, look at verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. 
for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So here's the deal. This is still taking place on the same day that Nadab and Abihu died. There is going to be a seriousness with which the people are going to hear these instructions. And the point is that you can't come into God's presence any other way than how God says. Now we still have that even in human terms. We have important people and there's protocols for how you come into the presence of an important person. We don't have it too much in in the United States because we're such a kind of egalitarian society. But if you go to England and you want to visit with the king, there's rules about it. Right, so if you're a man and you go in to visit the king, well, you bow from the neck a little bit. Or if you're a lady, you curtsy. Uh, your first address, well, the first thing you say to the king, you have to address him either as your majesty or your royal highness. And then every time you address him after that, you would call him sir. You're supposed to be early. You're supposed to be there before the king. You follow his lead. You don't speak till he speaks. You don't sit till he sits. You don't eat till he eats. During dinner, he's going to speak during the first course of the meal with the person on his right. Then during the second course of the meal, he's going to speak to the person on his left. You don't leave without his permission. And when you do leave, you don't turn your back on him. You back away facing him. There's all these rules about how you come into the presence of the king because he's the king. If that's the case on a human level, how much more so with the God of the universe who is perfectly holy? And so you don't come into his presence any other way than the way that he has said. So Aaron is given these instructions. And it's crucial because God's presence is there in the tabernacle. And you must approach God's presence only in the way he says. Now, verses three through five give us instructions about offerings. There's two offerings for the high priest. There's two offerings for the people. Then uh, when you get down to verse five, it says this, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. We're going to focus on those goats, but I want you to notice this in that verse. Those two goats together form one offering. The two goats aren't two offerings. The two goats together form one offering. They each picture something different. They both give you part of the picture of what this sacrifice is intended to tell us. Okay? Now look at verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. The word atonement is introduced there. We have the bull for Aaron and his family. There's two goats for the people. There's the goat for the Lord that's going to be sacrificed as a sin offering. The other goat is going to carry the sins of the people away into the wilderness. This is atonement now. And remember our definition to appease the wrath of an offended party by a gift that rectifies an injustice done in order to restore a broken relationship. So the broken relationship with God is going to be restored by the gift. That's the picture here. And while almost all of the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement are individual, and lots of other ones are individual, this particular offering is for the people as a whole. It's for all of God's people together. Then in verses 11 through 14, 
the high priest applies the blood of the bull in the Holy of Holies and the, the incense, the smoke protects him from seeing God's glory and the blood gets applied on the atonement cover of the ark. Then come down to verse 15. Let me read this. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. So he goes around and applies the blood all through the tabernacle to these different things because the place has been defiled by the people's sin. It's a picture of the world. I won't go into all the details of that, but the place has been defiled by sin and so the place needs to be atoned for. Now look at verse 20. And when he's made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So he puts both hands on. This is showing that this is for all the people. He presses down on the head of the goat, and he symbolically transfers all of the iniquities, transgressions, and sins of the people to the goat. So what are those things? Well, iniquity just means wickedness. Transgression is when you cross a line. There's a boundary or a law that you've transgressed. Sin just means missing the mark. So it's not doing everything you're supposed to do. It's pretty comprehensive then that this is for all the transgressions, iniquities, and sins. This is for everything. And the goat is sent out into the wilderness. Now catch this. The first goat that became a blood sacrifice pictured the means of atonement. So atonement happens by means of a blood sacrifice. The second goat pictured the effects of the atonement. The sins of the people are carried far away. It's the means and the effect. And those two things together are one offering that point us forward to Jesus. That's what Jesus is going to do. So in the rest of the, the chapter then, we see there's some other offerings that are made. The remains of the sacrifices are disposed of outside the camp and they're burned. We're told, we're given these instructions that they're supposed to celebrate this every year on this day. It's a Sabbath. There's no work to be done. It signifies being cleansed from sins. The atonement is for the place and for the people. And then look at the final verse of the chapter, verse 34. 
And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So it's to be a yearly observance. It's to happen every single year, year after year. Now, I want to tell you what Jesus does in achieving atonement. Before I do that, let me just briefly point out how we, in our vain thoughts, try to achieve atonement apart from him. Our world tries to achieve atonement apart from Christ. I'll give you two examples. One, racial reparations. Our culture recognizes that we have a problem regarding conflict between peoples. So we, we have racism and prejudice and oppression. We can debate how much it's there and how much it's imagined and all of those things. But our culture's solution to that, our means of finding atonement is financial reparations, perpetual victimhood, white guilt, tearing down privilege, all of that. What is all of that? All of that is a gift that is being offered. The financial reparations, that's a forced gift, but it's a gift being offered. It's not actually being offered to the people who were the victims. It's people that are their descendants or whatever the case may be. But the point is, this is a version of atonement. It's a false version, but you get the idea of the gift that's being offered in order to try to fix the problem that's been created. A second example would be environmentalism. We recognize that there's a problem with the environment, whether there is or not. Sometimes there are people who abuse the resources that are given to us in the earth. And so um, the, the popular way of referring to that then today becomes climate change. And so we want to do something to fix the problem that has been created in climate change. Our culture's solution is that we value the planet then over the people. And so the solution is things like green energy and regulations and population control through euthanasia and abortion and assisted suicide and things like that. All of those are promoted as being good for the environment. Here, here's a, and, and just to give my, an, an illustration of the point. In 2020, Mercedes-Benz came out with an electric vehicle. Okay, this is the, um, the EQC. And there was an auto blog article describing this and it said the car was presented in Norway as an oil rich country that can afford generous subsidies for electric cars. Now think about that. There's a cost to the people of Norway. They can afford it, right? It's so it's a gift. There's a cost. It's a gift that's being given in order to atone for the climate change issue. Okay, so the electrical vehicle and the costs associated with it become an atonement. The next sentence of this article said, think of it as secular atonement. I'm not making it up. The idea of atonement is woven into the very fabric of our world. And regardless of whether or not someone is a Christian, they understand the idea. What is this gift being given to? It's not being given to people. It's being given to the planet. Instead of worshiping the creator, we're worshiping the creation and we're going to atone 
for our broken relationship with the creation, with the planet, and we're going to give this gift. It's going to cost us something to, to, to drive these electric vehicles, and so we're going to do this as a means of secular atonement. We're going to fix the relationship we have with the planet. We understand the idea of atonement, but all of these are false atonements. There's only one true atonement, and that's what Jesus accomplishes. And so that's what I want to finish with. Let me give you five things that Jesus accomplishes with his atonement on the cross. And I won't take a long time on any of them. Number one, peace. Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sin causes enmity, causes God's wrath to rest on us. But atonement brings reconciliation. It brings peace because the sin penalty is paid. The very word atonement, you realize, is a made-up word by the translators of the Bible. What does it mean? At one meant. Broken relationship, what Jesus does makes us at one again. Atonement. Um, those two goats are both brought to the entrance of the tabernacle. The goat that goes in shows the means of atonement. It's by blood sacrifice. The one that goes away shows the effects of the atonement. Our sins are carried far away. We're going to sing later Psalm 103. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There's no way that that verse was written without the psalmist thinking of the goat geography of Leviticus 16. One goat goes this way, one goat goes that way. The blood goes this way, the sins go that way. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are carried away. Peace. Second thing, access. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We talked a little bit about this last week, but sin causes separation. Adam and Eve in the garden, they immediately knew they were ashamed. They hid from God. They put something between them and God. And then they were separated further as they were removed from the garden. And the whole story of sin is separation from God. Israel is, is confronted with this in the tabernacle day after day because God's presence is in the Holy of Holies and you can't go there. There's a big veil blocking the way. You are separated from God. And the only time that anyone goes in is on the Day of Atonement. It's the high priest. And it pictures for us the access that Jesus gains through his atonement so that we can have access to God. Third thing, intercession. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I won't take time because we did this last week, but the high priest prays for the people. He represents them to God and Jesus, our high priest, prays for us still today. He is interceding for us now. He is being our great high priest today. Fourth, 
help. Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he is a man. Yes, he is fully God. He is also fully man. He can sympathize with us. So he's a sympathetic high priest who brings us mercy and grace to help us. That gives us confidence. And finally, the fifth thing has to do with God's presence. Turn with me to Revelation 21 and this is where we'll end. Revelation 21. This picture in Revelation shows the end goal of atonement. God and his people together forever. And it's a beautiful picture. Revelation 21. First three verses to start with. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What is the city? Well, it says that the city comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is the bride of Christ? The bride of Christ is the church. Is that what John's getting at here? Look down at verses 9 and 10. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Okay, now who's the bride of Christ? It's the church, the people of God, right? And the angel says, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The city is the bride, is the church, is the people of God. That's what the New Jerusalem is. It's not a physical building. It's the people of God. It's the bride of Christ. Why? Because that's where God will dwell with his people forever. Look at the description. We won't go into all the details of it, but you get down to the measurements of it. Look at verse 16, well, 15. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Okay, kids, math class, geometry. If you have a shape where the length and the width and the height are all the same, what shape is that? What'd you say? It's a cube. Okay, it's a cube. There is only one other cube in all of Scripture. Can any of the kids tell me what the only other cube in all of Scripture is? 
Do you know? Adults? Close. Part of it. It's the Holy of Holies. The very center, the presence of God, where it dwells, the Holy of Holies. What is John saying? The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, in the temple, has now become the whole thing. The New Jerusalem, where the presence of God dwells, is now the people of God. There's no more separation. There's no veil. The presence of God fills all. God is with his people forever. It used to be that you went to the temple to meet with God. With all of its rules and regulations and the veil and the priests and the sacrifices and all of that, and you still couldn't go in. Only your representative could. But now God's presence is with his people inseparably forever. You, 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 you follow that story through the Old Testament. You get to the New Testament and Jesus says, I'm the temple. And then Paul says, you're the temple. Why? Because Jesus ascended. He poured out the Holy Spirit to represent him. And where does the Holy Spirit reside? In you and me. So we are the temple. And the picture here is that God is now with his people. God's presence is with his people. There is no more separation that was caused by sin. The veil is gone. All of the rest of God is with his people forever. You see, you hear the language of it in verse 3? Behold, the dwelling place of God, what used to be the Holy of Holies, is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away everything from their eyes, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's still nations, there's still kings, they still bring their glory into his presence, but in some way, God's presence fills all. And there's no more separation, and so all the sorrow and the sadness that was caused by sin, all that stuff is gone. What does Jesus' atonement accomplish? Peace with God. Access to God. Intercession for us. Help when we need it. And restoration to the very presence of God. Does the ceremonial law still valid for today? You have a great high priest who right now is fulfilling that on your behalf. Jesus, who has atoned for the sins of his people. Lord, we thank you for the picture that is painted for us, even through these goat sacrifices, of the means of atonement, the shedding of blood, and how you shed your blood for us. And what it accomplishes, our sins carried far away. We are now restored to your presence because of Christ. If that's true, and it is, that changes everything. That should change how we live. Help us to love you well by following your law because we've been redeemed by you and our sins have been atoned for. We've been restored to your presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.